Throughout the four Sundays of Advent, we will have a look at four different Advent hymns as a lens through which to unpack the major themes of this Christian year. These hymns range in age from 1,600 years, as the hymn we just sang uh, has, and to 40 years, which some of the newest ones uh, have. So it's a nice range of texts uh, by which we can enter into the season of Advent. As we turn our attention now to the reading and proclamation of God's word, let us bow for a word of prayer. God of grace and truth, who took on flesh to dwell among us in Jesus Christ, speak to us once again this morning of your grace and your truth. Give us the grace of your Holy Spirit, that as your word is read and proclaimed, we might hear your word for us today and be equipped to live it out in the week ahead. These prayers we make in the name of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh. Amen. The Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I invite you now to listen for God's Word to you. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while the Spirit of God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And the New Testament lesson comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and 10 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of human will, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. From the moment of our birth, we begin a process of leaving home. 
It's a process that unfolds slowly, but from the minute our umbilical cords are cut, it begins. Having emerged quite literally from our mothers, we have gone from one with her and within her to two distinct persons. And thenceforth, we set out on our journeys into the world, our journeys of becoming our own individual selves. My son James only just turned one, but I can already observe his process of leaving home creeping along. Whereas I could once sit and read with him asleep on my shoulder, now it's hard to get him to sit still at all. And sure, he often wants to be picked up, but shortly thereafter he wants to be put down again, eager to crawl away from me, anxious to explore the world on his wobbly little legs. His orientation is already outward-facing, as his curiosity constantly leads him to explore his surroundings. And he's learning to assert his will, sometimes over and against the will of his parents, the first signs that he is indeed becoming his own little self. As time goes on, we venture further and further from our homes. We go off to school for the first time, to summer camp for the first time, to college for the first time. We marry and begin forming a new home of our own, hoping to bring with us good things from our families of origin and perhaps hoping to leave behind some not-so-good things. But leaving home isn't always a straightforward, linear journey, or even always a progression. Sometimes we wander from here to there, to and fro. It takes some figuring out. And though we leave home, we often return again, each day after elementary school, during summer breaks in college, after a painful divorce or an unexpected bankruptcy or to offer a benevolence to an institution we once attended, or to bury a loved one. So you see, all throughout our lives, we engage in this continuous process of leaving home. And the process looks different for each of us. Some children, sadly, are forced to leave home much sooner than they should, and perhaps have no home to return to later. Meanwhile, some adults who, for instance, still continually seek their parents' approval in everything they do, may live in a new house, may even have a new nuclear family, but in many ways have never left home at all. So the process looks different for each of us, but it's an essential part of our human development and our spiritual development. From the moment we are born, we begin a process of leaving home. And as hard as it may be for children to leave home and step out into the whole wide world, it can also be incredibly difficult for their parents who must entrust their children's process of journeying forth to God. While some parents might make the mistake of pushing their children too far from home too soon, it seems more common in our culture today for parents to unhelpfully inhibit their children's process of leaving home. Think helicopter parents who may be overly protective and sheltering, shielding their children from learning to recover from failure or take responsibility for mistakes, or who curtail the impulse their children have to explore the world. To be sure, they are well-meaning, just doing their best to love their children. But in the end, it's important for parents to learn 
to bless their children as they send them out with their love, as they embark on their individual journeys as their own selves. So leaving home is ultimately a process involving both parents and children. Both have an intuitive sense that it's necessary, but at different points along the way, both navigate different kinds of anxieties. It's a part of growing up, a part of becoming who we're meant to be. And while it's not easy for a child who was once one within their mother's womb to go forth into the world, it is much easier when the parent sends the child forth with love and a blessing. This image of a parent sending a child forth with love and a blessing lies at the heart of Christian theology and especially the mammoth concepts of Trinity and Incarnation. The Father and the Son, one in the perfect unity of the Godhead, engage in a process of leaving home of sorts, a process of going forth. The Son, of course, does not wander aimlessly off from the Father, but is sent forth with a mission and a purpose to take on flesh and dwell among us, full of grace and truth. And meanwhile, all throughout the incarnation, the Son remains inextricably connected to the Father by the Holy Spirit, the unbreakable bond of love between the two. Christian language about God does its best to express this deep dynamic of love within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. God is neither three nor one, but somehow three in one, always united in a love that both makes one and sends forth. The Gospel of John goes further in articulating this image than any other place in the Bible. In this magnificent prologue to his Gospel, John says that it is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This sentence translated literally reads, God's one and only is towards or within the bosom of the Father. It's a beautiful phrase, one that I thought of the other day as I was sitting on my living room floor reading to James. He sat on my lap and I rested my chin on the top of his head and he leaned back into my chest listening to me read. And just as I was soaking in the love of that moment, I realized the amazing power and depth of this phrase in a way that I never had before. And you see, that's the sort of image that the traditional language surrounding the Trinity offers us. It makes God so dynamic and personal. To be sure, there are drawbacks surrounding the masculine language of father and son, which is somewhat limiting, even if you offer a feminine flavor to the way that you describe the Holy Spirit. God is not a boy's name, after all. But in speaking of the Trinity only as creator, redeemer, and sustainer, for instance, may be helpful in describing what God does, but not as helpful in describing who God is. And there's even less personalized terms often in use today, such as the divine or the universe, phrases that altogether lack an expression of love that our faith confesses in, is inherent in God's very person, love which is best captured with the language of parent and child. God is no more masculine than feminine, to be sure, 
But neither is God merely a force or an energy or an idea or enlightenment. God, as far as scripture is concerned, is a person. And not only a person, but a person who loves another person so perfectly that their love makes them one. Now, theology need not always boil down to binary categories of right and wrong. Often it can boil down to good, better, and best. Many images of God are useful. All language has certain limitations and drawbacks. No language is perfect, certainly not in an endeavor to capture who God is. And images for the Trinity abound. Call God mother if you wish, or just parent. But what's essential in the end is that God is a person and not a thing, a being and not an it. The universe doesn't have a heart or a bosom like a parent does. The Gospel of John offers the language necessary to plant the seeds for the doctrine of the Trinity, which would be worked out over the next few centuries. At the First Council of Nicaea in the year 325, an orthodox understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son, which I've just tried to articulate, was officially established after much debate. There was an influential priest at the time named Arius, who held that Jesus Christ was created by God the Father. He was created out of nothing and did not emerge from within God. Christ was the first creation, to be sure, and so worthy of that honor, but was a creation nonetheless. There was a time when he was not, Arius was fond of saying. The opposing view, which prevailed at the Council of Nicaea, was advocated most famously by a man named Athanasius, isn't that a great name? Athanasius, a tongue twister in and of itself. Athanasius held that Christ was eternally begotten of the Father, and therefore Christ had no beginning. To be begotten of God meant that Christ was not created outside of God, as the rest of creation was, but rather Christ emerges from God, unlike the rest of creation. And furthermore, Christ was eternally begotten of God, which means that Christ's coming forth from the Father did not have a beginning. Instead, Christ has eternally been coming forth from the Father in a kind of dynamic synergy. Thus, the Father and the Son are of the same essence, the same substance, and are both eternal. As Athanasius and his party emerged victorious from this rigorous debate, the doctrine that Christ is eternally begotten of the Father was codified in the words of the Nicene Creed, which disavow the views of Arius. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And the words to the hymn of the Father's love begotten put to melody this central confession of our Christian faith. The hymn asserts the eternal nature of Christ and celebrates the incarnation of God in Christ through which God accomplishes the ultimate victory over sin and death and evokes eternal praise from all creation. Of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be, he is Alpha and Omega, he the source, the ending, he. 
of the things that are, that have been, and that future years shall see, evermore and evermore. The lyrics to this hymn date back from around the time of the Council of Nicaea to the 4th century. A Roman Christian poet and lawyer-turned-ascetic named Aurelius Clemens Prudentius penned these words as a part of a larger collection of poetry called Liber Catamaranon, which means Book of Daily Things. It was meant as a poem for daily contemplation. Though of the Father's Love Begotten was originally meant to be read and contemplated, in the Middle Ages it was converted to a liturgical hymn for use in worship. The original hymn has nine stanzas, six of which, as we've seen, appear in our hymnal to this day. The hymn was translated into English for the first time in the 19th century by John Mason Neal. The hymn tune to which these lyrics are set, Divinum Mysterium, fits the proclamation of the text well, Divine Mystery. This plain song chant from the 13th century is simple, yet as it moves up and down, high to low, it facilitates the contemplation of the mystery of God's presence, coming down from heaven and taking on flesh in Jesus Christ. Indeed, it's the Trinity that's at the heart of the divine mystery, and the miracle of the Incarnation captures and stimulates our imaginations and defies our categories for understanding as we try to wrap our minds around just how much God has done for us in Christ. There's much value, of course, in our contemplation of the mystery of the Holy Trinity, facilitated so well by this ancient hymn. It is said, I think helpfully, that the Trinity is not so much to be understood as to be adored. And indeed, this hymn assists us in our, ador in our adoration of the triune God, as well as any hymn I know. But the modern person desires action items associated with all of our doctrines, right? We don't want to just contemplate. We want to know the practical side of theology. We want to know how what we believe changes what we do, how we act, how we understand our lives and our purpose. And so for this reason, I think we sometimes don't spend much time thinking about the Trinity because it doesn't seem practical. It just seems esoteric and confusing. But consider this. For Christ to be eternally begotten of the Father means that within God there has always been an eternal dynamism of the Father sending the Son forth from God's own self. And this divine reality is captured most clearly in the Gospel of John, which we read today. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. So it's within God's very nature both to send and to go forth. Just as the Father sends forth the Son, so also the Son sends forth the church. And just as Christ is eternally begotten of the Father, so also Christ continuously gives life to the church. To be united with Christ is to be joined to God's mission to the world. The theology of the Trinity is ultimately a theology of mission. And how's that for practical? Friends, all throughout our lives, 
we engage in a process of leaving home, of going forth into the world, of pursuing the mission and the calling that God has placed on each of our lives and unfolds before us. Thankfully, this is a process God intends, and it's a process that God knows well, one in which God too embarks in the incarnation as the Son goes forth from the bosom of the Father and takes on flesh and dwells among us full of grace and truth. And so even as we rest in the bosom of God ourselves, may our adoration of the Holy Trinity lead to a deeper sense of purpose and understanding of what it means to be sent forth with the love and blessing of God who goes with us, that all creation might join the hymn and chant in high thanksgiving and unwearied praises that shall be evermore and evermore. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Alleluia and Amen.